My wife and I periodically at the end of the night like to watch The Amazing Race. And <clears throat> I think I saw a fist, bump, a, a fist pump somewhere out there. And uh, when, when we do so, Phil, the host, always has great intros. He gets you very intrigued. And I felt because of the type of thing that we're doing, I needed to give you a Phil-esque type introduction. Today, our church is going on an exhilarating journey through the Bible to understand a word fitly delivered by Peter and find the all-important clue, a revolutionary and hopeful application. And the winners win the world. This is where we're going today. We, we have a <clears throat> phrase which can at first reading, be kind of dark to us. Like, what's, what's that mean? Well, Peter has, has used literally two different idioms and slammed them together in order to illuminate and tell us what is going on here with Simon in his heart. And since we're probably not familiar with Hebrew idioms, I think we need to go on a, a excavation, a journey in order to find what these things mean. <clears throat> An idiom, as you'll know, is, is a word that's, or a phrase that's not meant to be taken quite literally. If somebody tells you, yeah, you're just going to have to bite the bullet, it doesn't literally mean he's going to hand you a shotgun shell and you can gnaw on it or something like that. Uh, it means something completely different. The, the idiom, bite the bullet, is a, is a metaphor. It's to be taken as describing the inevitable and difficult situation that you have to receive and then endure no matter what the consequences are. That's, that's bite the bullet. That's what that means. Well, in the same way, you have two different idioms. And the first one is the gall. I see that your heart is in the gall of bitterness. And so we want to figure out what this means today. And that appears in Deuteronomy 29. Verse 18, so I'd like you to go there. <clears throat> we will summarize a little bit in the context, but Deuteronomy 29, 18. <clears throat> Most here will probably know one of my favorite verses is Deuteronomy 29, 29. So I'm very familiar with this context. You may think Deuteronomy 28, uh, you have blessings and curses a very important chapter in scripture. And in fact, it was one, even up until recent times, people still swear in the Bible, but it, the Bible in the courtroom used to be open to this very chapter. Swear on the blessings and curses that come with the law of God. They were binding themselves to those things in testifying in court. <clears throat> That's chapter 28. That's what follows into this. If Israel's to live by the law, According to God's good and righteous standard, they are to prosper. If they are not, curses are going to fall upon them. And just prior to the text we'll read, we'll read 29, 16 through 19. But in the text just prior, uh, they are in Moab and all the peoples are gathered together to enter into really renewing the covenant that was made at Sinai. This is not instituting something new as it were, but it's a renewal of sorts and all the people of God are there to enter into a sworn covenant with Yahweh. 
And this is all based upon the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's a very momentous event. And then at this point in verse 16, there is a solemn warning and caution to the people, which is where we find the idiom in our text. Let us read 16 through 19 together. It says, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone and of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from Yahweh our God to go and serve the gods of the nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing, uh, in the Greek, it's bit, uh, um, excuse me, gall and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. So you see that the idioms put together a little bit differently, but this is the origin in Scripture. If you want another reference in your, and you don't have a reference in your, in your Bible in front of you right now, you might want to write down Hebrews 12 talking right in that section about the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. In that context, there's this repeated phrase, if you want to go study that for for more clarity later. But here, what is transparently obvious is in the text, we are in the Greek, this is in the Hebrew, so there's slight differences, as we've seen in Acts. A lot of times, the New Testament is quoting what's called the Septuagint, as we've talked about. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, so that's what's being quoted. And so the two words, gall of bitterness, is what you may be in, if in your ESV, poisonous and bitter fruit, the gall of bitterness. <clears throat> we had already seen what Simon had done. He was coveting this power. He's really envious against the apostles. And so the use of gall of bitterness in in Peter's words to Simon is he wants to show and point out that he was envying the apostles' power and that he had a lust for, for what? You remember, he was the one who was getting all the acclamation. This man is great. The power of God, which is called great. He wanted to be Honored and glorified, and that's what this power signified to him. He had turned away from giving glory to God and desired to receive it himself. It is not far away. In fact, it seems to me a recapitulation of the temptation in the garden. He desired the praise and glory and power that belongs to God alone. He wanted to be like God. It's a perennial temptation for all of us, which we must be on a lookout for. This is your first text there. The second one is the bond uh, 
of unrighteousness. Please turn to Isaiah 58. We're hopping on a plane and journeying to another portion in the scriptures. We were in the law. Now we're in the prophets. And lots of quotations, as you'll see in Acts, do this. Join two texts together from Psalms and the law or different places in the scripture to show that there is a consistent message, but, but also that there is something rich being communicated. Isaiah 58. We'll only read two verses here, verse three and verse six. In verse three, we'll see the problem. In verse six, we'll see the, the phrase that comes up in, in Peter. It might sound slightly different, but uh, literally it's the same thing, the bond of unrighteousness or the bond of wickedness, something like that. <clears throat> Isaiah 58. You don't need too much updating in Isaiah here. Simply, this, these whole sections from like 56, even before that, is, is threatenings that come to covenant-breaking Israel. They were doing the right things externally, but their heart was not engaged in faith. <clears throat> and so they are in transgression. And so they're, they're, there's looming judgment. <clears throat> so here is the word of the Lord, verse 3 and verse 6. Verse 3. Why have we feasted and you see it not? This is them speaking to God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have taken no knowledge of it? Here's the word of the Lord. Behold, in the day that you fast, you seek your own pleasure, your own business, and oppress all your workers. Verse 6 it is not, is not this the fast that I choose to loosen the bonds of unrighteousness or bonds of wickedness? There's our phrase to undo the strap of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. <clears throat> I hope you see how these things, these two things are tied together so perfectly in Simon what was going on before, we must remember. Simon was enthralling the people through uh, spiritism, through demonic power, and people were seeing his magic. He's like the magicians uh, who were with Pharaoh, and he was causing many to be oppressed. You remember when the gospel comes in, they're freed from this demonic oppression, demonic possession that they had. And what was his whole goal? His own pleasure, his own glory, his own fame. And so he is willing to to violate the second and greatest commandment to love your neighbor as himself. In fact, he is he is absolutely fine with with crushing and oppressing his neighbor for the sake of his own desire, his own comfort, his own Pleasure. So in, in this wonderful turn of phrase, uh, or double turn of phrase, maybe, there is a accurate description of, of biblical import. We know the destitute state of Simon's heart because of this. There had been a stronghold, an idolatrous stronghold 
that had turn in, uh, turned away from the living God, even though at a time previously he had been baptized and professed the faith. Now comes to him a fitting word of rebuke <clears throat> and tells him to turn away from this malicious lust to oppress people and to receive for himself praise. These things belong only to God. <clears throat> In fact, it, it really becomes more twisted when we understand it even more accurately because he had not only done this with a demonic power, now he sees the power of the Spirit of God. And we talked about what, what visually he probably was seeing there. But Simon is seeing this power from the Spirit of God and is so caught in his sin that he sees he can use the, or he desires to use the Holy Spirit for his own shameful gain. Similar way that we might see people in our day using the, the uh, preaching even of the scriptures for their own filling of their pockets or something of the matter. They are, they are doing it for things that they would love to remain covered. They desire praise, fame, wealth, whatever it may be. It is not so that others may be saved and walk in the fullness of what God has in Christ for them. It is so distorted, so twisted. And so what, what should we be instructed from in the scriptures regarding this? We need to talk about depravity and regeneration. Depravity and regeneration. Let us bring this at home to us. <clears throat> the corruption of man's heart is so deep, so vast, so wide, so powerful, so pervasive that there is no amount of self-improvement that can fix man's heart. There's no amount of behavior modification which can uproot sinful desire and idolatry. Man doesn't need a new outlet for his sin, which is slightly less harmful to others and a little bit more respectable to everybody else. No, he doesn't need any new outlet. He needs a new heart. Man's problem can only be remedied by a salvation from God outside of himself. Man has no ability in and of himself to cooperate with God or do anything of value. Only God's free grace in choosing to save us personally. It is only by Christ's incarnate and righteous life for us. It is only by his death on behalf of his people. It's only through his resurrection on our behalf. It is only by the power of the Spirit who causes new birth, who gives us freedom from the bondage of our enslavement to sin. As Jesus said, the one who is free is set free by the Son. It is only the grace of the Spirit that takes out a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, such that we are enabled to believe in Christ and are irresistibly drawn to him. The 1689 chapter 13 paragraph, paragraph one on sanctification says, we 
who are united to Christ and effectually called and regenerated, here's the key, have a new heart and a new spirit created in them by the power of Christ's death and resurrection. Have it. We are very aware of our own sinfulness. I'm very aware of my own sinfulness and failings. I I never have enough time, whether it's two minutes of silence or what have you, to confess all my sins, even seemingly from the previous day. Our corruption is great. And in in a tradition that recognizes that, we also must not lose ourselves in the hopelessness of thinking that we do not have the power. We do. We have a new heart that by God's Spirit bursts new desires for Christ by the Word and the Spirit, and we will overcome progressively, albeit falteringly, uh, overcome our sin, that is. So we must recognize and glory in what God has done in our regeneration, that is being born again, as we say, and in our sanctification, we have the power of God within us and the spirit to overcome our sin, even at times when we feel helpless. And so we are not in the bond of iniquity. We are not where Simon is in the gall of bitterness. Our hearts are turned towards the Lord though they need to progressively in every area of our life needs to be continually turned. But what I want to do for us, because there is a distinction. Now, you know, if you go read F.F. Bruce's commentary, he and I would say, ah, it's pretty clear Simon's an unbeliever. Uh, You want to, if somebody wants to quibble with that, that's okay. I, I know it may be a little bit more of a difficult task, but I think... Uh, Just as we saw Ananias and Sapphira, the gospel is coming and conquering. And even when everything looks good, there are rats in, in in the nest that need to be driven out. There are those who um, show that we really are never very far from war. That is the Christian life. It should not feel ultimately a cozy place because... We deal with real sin and and real people who are bent and who will pervert all things, even the Holy Spirit itself or claims to the Holy Spirit in order to oppress others, to destroy others, to enslave others in the church. We're warned about this many times in the New Testament. And so we should see a somewhat of a distinction between us and them, though we can resonate with all the ways that we fail. This is, this is absolutely true. But <clears throat> uh, let us talk about uh, Simon. Do, do you know any Simons in, in your life? Do, do you know men or can think of men who for the sake of their own idolatrous gain will oppress and, and enact injustice on others? Now, I had a really hard time figuring out what to do because, in, in fact, in our day and age, there are bunches of examples in every uh, sphere of government that's out there in, in terms of in the church, 
in in homes and in the world, (laughs) they abound. Examples abound. And I I was tempted, which I'm not going to do. I I tempted just to apply this on a societal level, which would benefit us. Some of you, hopefully, I I bet you, well, maybe I I don't know. I'm very curious. We're not going to do a poll right now. How many of you have heard, just in your own mind, Anthony Oliver's viral song, uh, it is it is hopefully one you've heard about and have listened to. He, uh, I was tempted to riff on this. He seemingly is inspired by Psalm 37, and he is uh, singing about the the wicked the wickedness of the oppression of our in, in in a governmental way in our land. So he sings the song "Rich Men North of Richmond." has nothing to do with people having wealth as a bad thing. It's rather those who want to have total control over your lives and who want to do that through taxation and, and oppressing you in, in various different ways. So <clears throat> this, this is a, it conjures up for us and helps us think about like the big problems which seem sort of out there and we're not going to tackle it uh, soon. And in California, we could talk about particular issues that might be hard. But those are big things that are hard to touch by any any one individual. In fact, it can't be done by one individual. And so what I want to do is to provide not not, um, this big mega um, solution where we all rally – uh, against uh, uh, to a grassroots cause in this big sense, but what I want us to do is to see how the scriptures incline us to an answer that is is tangible that we can actually participate in in our week to week basis. It's not a rally or a march on the Capitol that we're talking about. There is an underlying problem in us, in our homes, in our churches, in our societies, and in in our Christian life that underlies the bigger problems. So I want to address the smaller one, the underlying problem, and I believe over time if that's corrected then that is the answer. That is the biblical answer to how these things are solved anyways, though I wouldn't be opposed to a march on the Capitol or something like that. I'm just saying that it must be bigger, wider, longer, and more sweeping. The perennial problem that we face and the and have faced, and the reason we're seeing what we're seeing in our culture, in our churches, is passivity. Passivity, and especially male passivity. Now, hear me as a qualification. I am not seeking to browbeat men. Our culture does that, and they hate men. I've actually decided that my lifelong mission is, whether you think this is possible or not, it's my mission, is to see a modern reformation in the Christian church and in all of society. It's very optimistic. Amen. I think that's why Christ is ruling now and has subdued all his enemies to a point. We have more enemies to subdue. So that's the goal. And the way that I think this is going to be brought about is not by browbeating men. 
Uh, in fact, I don't think it'll happen without you men. I, I actually think husbands, especially in the home, are the key to this slow and steady growth of the kingdom of God and the revolution that I'm talking about. Our culture hates fathers because it hates God the Father, and it hates men. It seeks to berate and shame you for your strength. Because guess what? Real men pose a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Real masculine men who stand up to oppressors, we could point out the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or many others pose a threat to darkness. So what I want to do is give a a really practical solution, and I think a really profoundly biblical solution for bringing about what Luther prayed was kept and seems like it's fading now, that is Christendom, uh, Christ's reign in his people over the world. So first, beginning at the home level, everyone sees the overarching problem and the tentacles of government that try to reach into our homes and things like this. And the question is, how do they get cut off? That's oppression. That's a Simon-like impulse. How do we regain freedom? How do we depose people like a Simon? Well, there's a really basic and obvious answer, the gospel, right? That's what came in. That's what toppled his power. And that's a that's an easy one. Let's, let's think about the long-term, smaller, harder thing than just preaching the gospel. You should never do less than that. In fact, we should all do that more, but I, I'm calling you to this. We have to cultivate, if we have little men in our homes, not yet men, or if we're thinking about our grandkids or even ourselves, we have to cultivate Real men who take their God-given responsibilities, God-given responsibilities to heart. Not responsibilities that I might give you or any other person from any other um, guru might give you, but rather God-given, basic responsibilities to heart. I think this is the problem. The Bible or the biblical teaching I think it's so foundational and yet profound, many miss it. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Genesis chapter 1 usually has this, this commission given to it, which is called the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. All of you will know, uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, uh, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. That is the cultural mandate or the creation mandate. And the command is given to godly Adam before the fall, before any intrusion of sin. So in, in a way, if I'm going to paraphrase what God was saying to Adam, he says, Adam, have children, teach them. Sorry, I lost my place here. Have children, teach them to follow me. And make sure they fill every corner of the planet with cities, industries, farms, and families to my glory. That's the initial plan from creation before the fall. After the fall, we see that go seriously askew sideways. There are, uh, there's a line of godly 
men and families who do go that way, but there's also a predominant view that goes the other way in Cain and Lamech and so forth. But what we should glory in is that the cultural mandate, the creation mandate, has been reinstated after the fall. It's been reinstated. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 is the reinstatement of God's original plan. He hasn't abandoned it, changed it. It just now has another layer. It has a layer of redemption needed. It has a mediator and a new king who is the head of the new creation. Christ Jesus has reinstated saying, disciple the nations. Do the same thing that I commanded you to do before and now do it with the gospel and all of your other talents. In other words, how is this accomplished? So two very basic things that no one can argue with is how, uh, is, how is the Great Commission accomplished? How is the disciple the nations accomplished? Well, it's simply obey Genesis 2 and, or if you want a New Testament reference, Ephesians 5, where the head of the household or the man is established as the spiritual leader of the home. If you have a husband, if you're a husband and a wife, this is how that applies to you. If you also have kids in the home, you could take another verse like Ephesians 6 to raise your children in the paideia of the Lord, fear and admonition, the enculturation of everything to Christ. Or Deuteronomy 6, don't ever, whether no matter what you do, don't ever stop talking about the scriptures. When you rise up, when you lie down, Day after day after day after day after day, and you should probably not be willy-nilly about it. My application in the past, amen, my application is simply that we should be programmatic. We should plan it out. We should just not leave it to the whims of our emotions. You know how badly that goes. So let's be planned. Disciple our children. Disciple our wives. Teach them how to have dominion over the earth for God. By the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, your work, husbands, your whole wife towards your towards your your whole life towards your wife and towards your sons and daughters, or even your grandkids, if you have that place in their life, that's amazing too. Work your whole life to win their hearts to the mission of the kingdom of God. And trust that he is the one who fulfills the promise and the second commandment that he will be faithful to his promises, even to the thousand generation. That's, what's that, 40,000 years, something like that? He will be faithful, unrelentingly so, as we pursue this. The monumental task of the church. <clears throat> Gavin Newsom, you remember, I saw it all along. Our elders saw it. Uh, the first time I actually came here before, before I was called as pastor uh, there is one month closed and it was open from then on out. And, and I and the elders never budged, said Newsom is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. The church stays open. We are the church. We meet. We're commanded to in scripture. There's nothing to stop us from that. Mask mandates are coming again in California and they may be more strict. What we need to do is to think about those big problems that we're not going to change overnight. The last 
You know, the last Republican who they're not even conservative anymore, are they? The last Republican who was in office was the governor, and he wasn't much of a conservative. We're not going to win this overnight. That's my point. But we can win it in the long run, and how we do it is taking up our responsibility of our homes for men to find their highest satisfaction in leaving a spiritual inheritance to their children's children's children. It is an abdication of your duty and a sin which will hamstring your family if you do not take up this spiritual responsibility. It will also perpetuate the problem because someone has to take responsibility. When the trash overflows in your house, if you all just look at it, it's still going to keep overflowing. I don't know if you know that. It'll move into the rest of your house. And you'll become a hoarder and you'll be on a TV show and we'll, and we'll need a, and we'll, uh, you'll make money then. But right. Somebody has to take responsibility. And if men don't take responsibility in the home, the government will. If you don't take responsibility over your family, well, the, the TV in our culture will. It's not like we're not going to answer the questions. Well, do I go to church? Do I not go to church? Everybody's going to come up with an answer to that. Or you could apply it, you know, here. Do, do, we, do we read and pray and sing in our home or do we not? You will come up with an answer to that. <clears throat> but I'm asking you to not abdicate, abdicate your duty <clears throat> because that is where it starts. There is wicked men at the wheel who needed to be run out two generations ago. I didn't do it. You didn't do it. But this is our problem. We on the other hand, have neglected in many cases, at least this is my experience. Some of you I know have actually succeeded in these places. I haven't seen it personally. So this is just the normal for us. This may not apply to you, but we, by and large, in the culture, Christian culture, have neglected to pass on a robust Christian culture with music and singing and arts. We have neglected to band together to start Christian institutions and businesses which our children help erect and that they will inherit. Like I said, some of you have done that, and that's an amazing grace to them. Our society, a, a society needs in order to last and to grow and to build and not deteriorate into nothing, needs to pass on its culture. And that is the way. When, when men are active in all the responsibilities God has given them, passivity is not the option. Men, little boys, and little girls are raised to know their responsibilities and to know what responsibilities they must take up. They're not passive. They're not going to give it to the pagans. They're not going to give it to the secularists. They are going to take it because they love their neighbor. They love their family. They love themselves because they love their God. So we must take up the responsibility, as I've taken many weeks previously, to demonstrate men for our families, our wives, if we have them, also kids. We are to take responsibility for our families' walk with Christ in Bible, prayer, 
and song. I encourage you, six days a week, with few exceptions, worship together with your family, whether morning, whether evening, whether afternoon. Pick up that responsibility and carry it to completion. If you have trouble reading, bring a dictionary. Google is pretty good at pronunciation of words, too. Go slow. That's fine. That's, that's totally fine. If, if you um, are not good at singing, well, neither am I. Join the club. And uh, everybody gets better if you practice. You can actually watch lots of good stuff online if you want. Uh, if you don't know how to use a hymnal, I found a great resource just recently to, to teach you because I was totally oblivious to this <clears throat> until somebody showed me about three years ago. But <clears throat> this is something that, that I could teach you. I, I come in your home and help. If we don't take up this task in our home, we do teach our families something still. And do you know what we teach our families? We teach them, ah, your walk with Christ is optional. That's between you and God. I'm not so concerned about it. We tell them, you know, just so long as we're comfortable and we don't fight about religion, we don't fight about our walk with God, then then you do your thing and I'll do mine. Wives, on the other hand, gladly submit to the mission that your, your husband and I put forth. Read, pray, sing with your husbands nightly. You do it in church together with the whole family here. <clears throat> Women, don't, don't be a bird in the saddle when he tries to take the reins and go in a good direction. When he's trying to apply the scriptures well. We make time for what's important, don't we? You set your alarm because you know you got to be at work at a certain time. Or you have certain tasks that you got to do regardless. Uh, for me, Sunday's coming up every Sunday. <laughs> it doesn't change no matter how difficult the text is or how many meetings or whatever. It stays the same. And so we make time for what's important. We cut out the time. We do extra hours. We study. We use the Resource Family Worship Bible Guide. We are not willing You should not be willing. Don't show your family that you're willing to spend two hours watching Amazing Race, as fun as it might be. Don't be willing to trade that for service to your family, making and cultivating a godly home. Now, when you have that certain kind of culture that is developed in your home, when it's developed, and I would say in the past few years, it has become developed in a way that is a huge blessing to us in our home that never was. <clears throat> Mind you, I never had anybody to, to help me along this. I will remind you, or maybe I didn't say this, but I will remind you that the Westminster Standards actually saw this as a place of church discipline. So if a man did not lead his family in his home, most of the nights of the week, he would be put under church discipline. Now, we're not there because we're not that spiritual. We're not. We're way, more, uh, we're way less godly than they were in Westminster. That's a shame to us. Let us not be like that. Let us not be like the rest of our American culture, who every one of the family members do their own thing. And whether or not Christ is honored, well, whatever, anyways. No, you should never be like that. There are promises in scripture that says God will save your children if you're faithful, even though it's not automatic. 
This is because God loves his people. He loves blessing us with good things. So let us take up this responsibility. And what will happen is you will be an agent of change in your church because you're already used to taking responsibility. You're like, okay, hey, let's say you're a young man and you're like, I've seen good dads, kind of. I don't really have very many good experiences. I don't, I don't have, um, this is a young man speaking. I, I don't have like good examples. I, I want to be a great man. Pfft, I don't even know where to start. Like what books do I read? Where in scripture can I go? What do I do? <clears throat> if that man has already begun to take responsibility for the spiritual um, walk with Christ in his family... He's going to very quickly have his eyes up and go, hey, I need to do this. Other men need to do this. There's older men in the church. I'm just going to start talking to people. I'm going to, maybe, maybe they know of something that's been really helpful. Maybe, maybe I need to talk to the pastor and figure out, like, maybe we could get all the guys together and, and go through a book or read the scriptures or just, just talk about some of these issues. <clears throat> that's taking responsibility of a need that you see. We have plenty of needs here. Look inside yourselves and look outward and go, not perfect, needs help, I need help. And, and take responsibility of the direction of this church. It is up to you. It is not up to the elders, primarily. We're responsible for that. But let's say you find yourself, let's say God calls you away. You find yourself in a church with a single pastor model. Or with elders who are at the wheel. Asleep at the wheel, that is. Who takes responsibility? You know, if a man in that context started to preach heresy, started to deny the Trinity and teach others to do likewise, who's responsible for that? The church. Yeah, if there's no elders, this is the situation. It's the church. It's you. You can't tolerate false teaching. And this is your church. This is God's church. It's not his church. God's in charge. Get him out of here. That would be the case for me. Be the case for anybody. <clears throat> we are responsible for our church. We, all of us. We are responsible for our church. We are responsible for our home. And those who take responsibility in those basic areas will also go, I don't want the wicked to run my city council. They want to castrate our children chemically. They want, to, they want to hurt our little ones. They want to indoctrinate them. We can't let those people. I know that guy. I've known him for 20 years. He's an evil man. I'm going to run for city council. I'm going to get on the school board. I'm going to... Those... This is how the slow progress of the gospel happens. You don't do it apart from the gospel... You do it because the gospel and with the gospel, you speak it. it um, if all the powers were to change um, instantly, just because there's a godly law in place doesn't mean anybody gets regenerated because of law. We know that from the Old Testament. But it's still a better place to live than, uh, you know, in California. Let's say you get in a bad situation uh, the courts will step in now. You sh- if you don't have Assemblyman Gallagher and you're in, some of you are in a different county, but if you're in this county, uh, Gallagher sent out a, an email which 
basically said, yeah, um, it's, it's coming along. The first step, which seems inevitable at this point, is if there's a, a divorce proceeding, well, if there has anything to do with the transgender ideas, if you're on the negative side, the one that doesn't affirm those things, well, your kids are going to be taken because they don't side with the state. Does it stop there? No, no, it doesn't stop there. It's a slippery slope. Stuff like that will continue to happen. And so what we slowly do is we take responsibility for us, our own spiritual lives, our family, our church, and we pray fervently for the gospel to impact all those societies. And then it flows out from us. We're like, we're like when, when we're working together and being built up, it's like a spring of water that overflows. Blessing trickles downward from the church into the culture, from the dad and the mom onto the children and to the generations from them. And so men, especially, get your eyes up. Be like Second Peter chapter 1, whereby you're looking around so that the church would have a and an entrance paved into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior that is richly provided for them because you took responsibility in the gifts that God has given to you. This is the opposite impulse of the Simon. One who has set his heart on the good of the kingdom and its many members in the home and the church rather than on our own business. We need to confess, men, We're all guilty of this and repent of desires that say me, me, me. Rather, men, our hearts should say we, us, we, and take responsibility for the spiritual direction of anybody who would give us the opportunity to lead them in the right way according and only according to the scriptures. Until Christ puts all enemies under his feet, let us pursue this. Let us pray.